3: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Black history, writes award winning artist and graphic designer George McCalman, tends to mean the 10 people who are lauded every Black History month of every Black History year. McCalman upends that constricted notion in his most recent book, Illustrated Black History, a tribute to more than 140 pioneering and sometimes unseen Black artists, activists, and thinkers who have, quote, sacrificed their lives and livelihoods or forfeited their homes and sanctuaries in the course of defining American history. We'll talk to McCalman about those he chose to profile, paint, and celebrate next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I'm here today with artist and author George McCalman, who has just completed An Illustrated Black History, a beautiful book featuring more than 140 Black American luminaries that he described, and drew, painted, or inked. They range from Black Lives Matter activists to Ben Carson. They were selected based on who McCalman felt connected to, moved, or changed by in some way, making illustrated Black history deeply personal, yet universal at the same time. Do you have an unsung black hero? Tell us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at KQED Forum. Call 866-733-6786. Email forum at kqed.org. George McCalman, welcome to the forum.
1: Thank you so much, Mina.
3: It's wonderful to have you here. It's wonderful to see this book. It was born from a project you gave yourself way back in February of Mm. 2016. That's correct. Yeah, you challenged yourself to research, write, and paint. In one day, one black pioneer, each day, why mm-hmm. did you give yourself a challenge like that?
1: <laughs> um, I think I was looking for a greater purpose. Uh, I was at a point in my... I run a design studio, and so I'm I'm plenty busy. And, um, and at the time, I was going through a little bit of an existential crisis where I was trying to figure out if I was an artist. And this project was kind of an epiphany that I had, that this was something that coincided with my interest in probing a little bit deeper into my education around Black history. And I recognized that there was an ocean of information that I didn't know.
3: Yes, you describe it as a project born out of two things in counterpoise, essentially to know Black history better than you already did. Mm -hmm. But also to see if you were an artist. What made you question whether you were an artist?
1: Well, I am by trade an art director and a graphic designer, which means that I work with a lot of artists. I work with a lot of uh, commercial, fine artists, photographers, writers. And so I'm used to a role of facilitation. And in terms of guiding, directing, um, deciding you know i see myself as a conductor working with other artists and so i even though i am an artist i haven't really seen myself in that role and so the project gave me a chance to kind of strip away the veneer of how i work to to do something that was entirely generated by me
3: yeah there's this sort of duality to the project in the way that you took it on because of the fact that you play these roles You were at once creative director and artist, Mm -hmm. teacher and student. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how those two roles work together within one person, one George McCallman?
1: Yeah, it's it sounds schizo, but it it actually was a kind of coordinated and an organized way of not making myself not psyching myself out, frankly. Uh, kind of giving myself rules and parameters that allowed me to kind of play in the pen of my own creation so that I could just create without having to second-guess myself. And and so the structure of it being a month felt attainable. It was a little little better, like I felt a week was a little too weak. (laughs) And a month felt like enough of a challenge that I would really commit myself to it. And the other parameter I gave myself is that the original series was entirely in black and white. Mm -hmm. And I know that from my experience, um, I tend to think very broadly about color, and I tend to think intellectually and academically about color. And so I wanted to kind of strip away that extra kind of thing in my brain, foisting around, kind of allowing myself to... I would have overthought it, basically. And black and white just allowed me enough of a sense of light and shadow that I could play with the rules of that and and still kind of get everything done on time.
3: Well, one of the first portraits you did, as I understand it, is that of Edna Lewis, mm-hmm. who was a revered talent in African-American cuisine. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose her? What was it like to draw her?
1: Well, a lot of the choices came from my own personal interests in in food, culture, technology, science, you know, I was really kind of interested in people who have not been given their due that are known by a segment of the population. You know, in the black community, we call uh, there's famous and then there's black famous. And uh, Edna Lewis is black famous. And so I wanted but for me, she was just famous at the same time, mm-hmm. um, even though a majority of Americans still don't know uh, her importance. Um, and so because I design a lot of food-related things, she was someone that I had on my original list. She was just someone of interest, and she's such a um, a, a seminal figure in terms of the narrative of Black food, carrying it from uh, a knowledge of the earliest aspects of the country to where we are right now.
3: You talk about how you felt like you were getting to know her as mm-hmm. you drew her mm-hmm. in that you spent a lot of time, quote, communing with the people that you profile. Can you give us a sense of what that that is, what that feels like, what you were experiencing?
1: Yes. Um, I had dinner last night with a friend of mine who early in the original process Called me and gave me a piece of feedback that I, I had basically thought was hidden in plain sight, and her her assessment made me realize that it was actually evident. Um, she said, "You you draw and paint emotionally. I can see your emotions in the lines," and I remember being kind of shocked that someone else saw the subtlety, and and it is absolutely true. My emotions are very much in the art that I do. And I make that a point to make that clear that I am someone who I don't often know the tools that I'm going to use before I sit down to do it. I, I go with feeling. And a majority of the art that I have produced in the last seven years has been with that through line. I, I am just very clear that it is coming. You can actually see, you know, you can see the, the hard line. You can see the squiggles. You can see the soft lines. And, and there's a cacophony of emotion in each of those pieces and n- knowing that early in the process just helped settle me more into that I didn't fight it at all it was it was very much a piece um it was a guide it was a rail that mm. kind of brought me along the the entire process i really embraced it It,
3: it did make you feel vulnerable
1: Absolutely yes <laughs> <laughs> It is and it's a very vulnerable thing to admit you know, yeah. um, it's it's kind of a layer underneath how we tend to talk about art. And and for me, that was the thing that was very important. And it was the, the kind of through line that brought me all the way to the end of the original project.
3: We're talking with George McCallum, an artist, graphic designer and creative director. His book is Illustrated, Black History Honoring the Iconic and the Unseen. As you're describing just the lines that you drew, one of the portraits that really comes to mind. You, you do, you profile people who are unseen and unknown, but you also profile people who are very well-known. Mm-hmm. And one of those is Aretha Franklin. Yes. Um, and just the, the drawing of her is pretty incredible, especially Thank her you. hair.
1: Yes. Oh, Yes. I can talk about the hair in this book. We could have just spoken about that alone. <laughs> <laughs> because I, um, uh, a lot of the portraits in the book, a majority of the, what I spent time on was the hair. I mean, black hair is, is the ultimate range of textures, colors, lines, shapes, contours. And it is it's my happy place. You know, it is the thing that I'm from the Caribbean, and there's a whole range, just because of colonialism, of an in, uh, astonishing range of black hair. And it is something early in my life I kind of key to, and I love representing that. And so it was a joy to basically spend time. That portrait of Aretha Franklin I did the day that she died. And I was representing uh, an aspect of her that I captured in the illustration, which is the sonic power of her voice. And I utilized her hair to show that potency.
3: Talk about the medium you used for that too and what you thought about and put into that.
1: Yeah, the every portrait in the book is completely is a completely different style, which is a uh, which was both intentional and something I backed into. But for the Aretha Franklin portrait, I used a brown ballpoint pen uh, to render it. And, and even that, I remember just kind of picking it up and starting and not knowing. Often, I don't know where something's going to go when I start working on the portrait. And I remember finishing it and feeling that I'd spent so much time on the hair that the ink was starting to dry in, on the pen. <laughs> and that's how i knew it was done because the the tool was telling me okay it's time to put put me down we're done
3: <laughs> the other thing that you describe about her which was so lovely is you talk about how despite her outsized presence on the stage aretha always made her music feel as if it was if, as if it were yours alone mm-hmm. and I can't help but wonder if that was also something that was going through your mind as you were doing something that was so deeply personal. Yes, um, but at the same time, you wanted it to be so accessible.
1: yes. and and it was straddling the balance between the two that I think is the was the magic for me, that I was you know, you asked earlier about the communing part. And I felt the entire time like I was in direct dialogue with each of the pioneers. Um, more so the ones that had passed on. They were very much the spirits were there in the communing, in the art. I felt like several of the pioneers called me to represent them a specific way. And so I was very kind of, it was kind of my conversation with them that produced the art. But then for anyone who is picking the book up, then it becomes about your relationship with them. And so there is the part of this that I kind of give away. And when you get the book, it becomes yours.
3: We're talking with George McCallman, artist and author about illustrated Black history. And we want to hear from you listeners. Who is your unsung or unseen Black hero? 866-733-6786, the number, email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Stay with us. This is forum.
0: For me to love
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. George McCallum's most recent book, Illustrated Black History, came from his desire to explore what he calls two things in counterpoise, his impulse to know black history better than he already did, and to see if he was an artist. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Who is your unsung or unseen black hero? Or you could share if you yourself have ever undertaken a project to prove that you could, to prove to yourself you were something that you wanted to. To be, You can share that by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum, giving us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And Judd writes, I have my copy of George McCallum's Illustrated Black History. It's a beautiful and informative, and if there's ever a sequel... My great uncle James Herman Banning should be included. He was the first black American to fly coast to coast in 1932, Los Angeles to New York City.
1: Thank you for the suggestion. Yeah,
3: thank you, Chad. Uh, speaking of flying, you profile aerospace engineer and astronaut Guillaume Stewart Blueford because of a quote of his that you highlight, which is, I'm an engineer and I am black and I'm lonely out there. It is a pretty incredible quote. I'm just curious um, why that spoke to you so much.
1: Well, the quotes in the book were something that I thought about um, after a couple of years of working on the book. Um, I had designed the layouts With a few things in mind, you know, I wanted it to be accessible, informative. All the typography in the book is by black typographers. But I thought that there was a piece of context missing, that it went basically from their names to their accomplishments, to their stories. And there was nothing that kind of brought you into the immediacy and the emotion of what they felt like. And so it felt necessary to have them in their own words for each entry. Um, And even for the figures who go so far back that there is no direct quote, someone speaking about them as a way to contextualize. And, you know, what that quote spoke to, and, and as many of the quotes speak to, is that when you're a pioneer, you're alone. You're charting new territory. There's no model. There's nothing else. You know, you are, you have to chart your own course. And so many, that is also the story of Black accomplishment is that it's lonely. It is lonely. Um, and when you're blazing a trail, when you are the first or the token or all of the, the many things that we still, unfortunately, associate with, with the Black community, that there, it means that there's more road to travel. And I, I found myself thinking many times in the making of this book how lonely and alone, a lot of the people in this book must have felt, must have attended to, had to figure out, had to strategize, had to survive, had to persevere.
3: You profile Celia Cruz, mm-hmm. <laughs> known as the Queen of Salsa. We just learned in the last couple of weeks that she'll appear on the US Quarter.
1: So wonderful. I, so wonderful.
3: There are a lot of reasons to feel drawn to to Celia Cruz, but when I hear you talking about Guillaume about being a pioneer, about being isolated, um, one of the things that I wonder about is, well, she, like you, is an immigrant mm-hmm. to the United States.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And you write about, well, you say, I am an immigrant, I exist outside the outside mm-hmm. of black and American history. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by outside the outside and is that part of your draw to Celia?
1: Well, we were talking during the break about the kind of balancing act of making something that is pure to oneself while also thinking about how other people will be interacting with it. Yeah. And, and that is, that is true of, of the process. That is true of that, that, that is true of the process for me, in terms of the making of this book. I spent a year second-guessing whether I was the right person to be making this because I am an immigrant. And I wanted to make sure I, I – I, it felt like at the beginning that I was taking a place of an American-born Black person in representing this book. And I really did. I I, I ruminated on it. I, I just wanted to make sure that it felt like I wasn't taking someone else's place. Um. And that is also a very immigrant thing to do—is being considerate <laughs> of things that a no one's asking us to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of it's a lot of overthinking. <laughs> that when you say it out loud, you're like, "Well, that sounded silly." Yeah, but it's, yes. <laughs> yes, yes,
3: yes, hundred percent. That
1: that really sounded silly, and in the rearview mirror, I could laugh about it now. But in the year that I toiled, it was a real quandary. And then I ended up going to the Legacy Museum in Alabama a couple months after it opened. And I walked out of there and I was like, what am I thinking? I'm doing this. And and I never second-guessed the, the thought again.
3: I was going to ask you how you landed where you were able to land, which is, of course, that you did this book. Yes. Why did the museum make that so clear to you?
1: Well, I... I think this museum very much has not been spoken about enough and how powerful and important a museum like this in the United States specifically. And I still think enough people have not gone to that museum. Um, You know, there, there are two museums actually there. It's the Lynching Memorial and then the Legacy Museum. And the Lynching Memorial has gotten more visual because it is a very visual experience. But the Legacy Museum is a museum that you have to go in to see what is on the inside. And what is there is precious, which is a distillation of the business of the creation of the United States, which I had never seen just laid out. It's a power of design. It's a brilliantly designed museum. And I was really struck at at the emotion that that design conveyed and um, and it was powerful. I mean, one of the smartest things they did was design a lounge for everyone to cry when they when they got out because it's it's intense. And you see, just in plain business numbers, you see how the United States was actually created. And it was it was we were the first corporation, and we trafficked in human beings, and that is why America started out with the unfair advantage of being a superpower because we had the labor to jump ahead of everyone else. And so it's just there, an introvertible, just just clear as day. And I came out with a fire and a passion and a clarity about this. I was like, why was I even second-guessing this? I am absolutely doing this all the way to the end.
3: You write about a a false perception that you've encountered that Black people don't know their their own history, and mm-hmm. you rejected it. You say black people carry history in their bodies.
1: Yeah, we do.
3: And that description of the museum made me think about about that. And, yeah. and if that also helped affirm for you that, that you were the right person.
1: Well, you know, the United States constantly tells us that what we think is not what we think. And, you know... As a community, we're always feeling gaslit by the larger narrative of this country because we we know the alternate history, which is the truth of of the origin and our ability to accept what has happened, and then seeing the larger culture, how much people are trying to not accept the truth. Um And the latest version of that is, you know Rick DeSantis,. Um, in florida and and counties in mississippi where books are actively being targeted and banned and this is just the latest version this is not even a new headline it's just the latest version of the united states messily not making its peace with its origins and so we're always looking at something saying do you guys not see this (laughs) because we see it clear as day and we know what's up why don't you guys know what's up?
3: And do you see illustrated Black history as partly an antidote to that?
1: Well, it's an antidote, but it's also going to be a target. Mm. You know, I, mm. I I don't have any, any fantasies about um, about what this book represents, which is basically a way for Americans to know more information about the people who have defined our culture. And it's it's there for you to know, and it should be there. And a book like this, which hasn't really existed before, should be in every home in the United States. And I've been saying this, I want this book to be in every home. And the feedback that I've gotten before I made made this book was just super casual. The word I use is that there's just a casualness about Mm -hmm. how people talk about American history through black pioneers it is very much abstract and there is no attention to it. And it is, you know, people feel good that it's relegated to a month. And so there's a period, one of the interesting and frustrating parts of when this book came out is that a lot of outlets did not want to cover the subject matter of the book. And we heard many times that, oh, we don't cover black history in October. We don't cover it in September. We don't. And I, behind the scenes, I heard that all the time. And it's, it's demoralizing. It's frustrating. It's angering. It's maddening. And it's all the kind of quiet conversations that go on behind the scenes. That when it comes to the larger cultural narrative, yes. there is still a passivity about this. That there is, there is no attention to integrating what Black Americans have, aco- have accomplished and contributed to the larger strata of how we think about what is American.
3: We're talking with George McCallum. His recent book, Illustrated Black History, Honoring the Iconic and the Unseen, is a collection of portraits and essays about more than 140 Black pioneers. And you, our listeners, are sharing who your unsung or unseen Black heroes are, or also if you ever undertaken projects to prove to yourself that you could the way that George <laughs> McCallman has. Let me go to Ailea in Oakland. Hi, Ailea. Join us. You're on.
5: Hi. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you to your your guest. Um, just real quick, when you mentioned about Black history and our bodies, I'm reading a book uh, called The Body Keeps the Score. But I definitely agree with him um, about our traumatic history and how it affects our bodies. But that's not why I called <laughs> um, <laughs> I just want to give a shout-out to uh, author of a cookbook. Um, her name is Angela Shelf Medeiros. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name right, but the book is titled The African American Kitchen. It's about over 250 recipes, and there's a recipe under the chapter Making Do Slave Kitchens. There's a recipe, the baked macaroni and cheese, that has saved me Um <laughs> Especially especially with my boyfriend's mom who can throw down in the kitchen and they always ask me to cook something and during the holidays and I made baked macaroni cheese from her from this Queen's cookbook and it's it saved me over and over again and um so I definitely want people to check that out. It's an old book from the nineties, but I mean it's tons of recipes in it. So.
3: <laughs> I love that. Thank you, Ileah. Thank you. Let me go next to Christopher in San Jose. Hi, Christopher, you're on.
6: Hi, yeah, thanks for for having me on. I wanted to do a shout-out to a pastor in Oakland. Her name is Yvette Flunder, and she grew up in the Pentecostal Black tradition. Her father was a very prominent bishop in the largest Pentecostal denomination in the world, Church of God in Christ, and she started a church uh, with an outreach to LGBTQ people, Um, back when it wasn't cool to be black, Christian, and gay, um, back in the 80s and 90s. And she was at the forefront of the AIDS movement. And I know my own story. When I was looking for examples to what it meant to be black, gay, and Christian, there were none until I was able to find one of her sermons on YouTube. And it completely changed my life, and I was able to both come out of the closet, but also remain true to my Christian, Christian identity and make it my own. And so I'm very, very grateful for her um, example and her influence and what she still continues to do um, in her church in Oakland. Wow,
3: what a beautiful tribute to Yvette Flunder, Christopher. Thank you. There are people in this book that may surprise one, Mm -hmm. including Ben Carson, for example. (laughs) Yes. Can you tell us why you included him?
1: Yes, Ben Carson was an avatar of an aspect of culture that we are in the midst of having more of an open dialogue about. It is when our icons fail us, mm. you know, it's, it is, it was taking on the Bill Cosby's and the R. Kelly's, you know, the, the people who were our Titans who represented us until they didn't anymore. And what to do with these people who are still people who are still here amongst us, um, and so what Ben Carson represented to me in the '80s when I first moved, my mother and I first moved to Brooklyn, which is where I grew up. You know, Ben Carson was a superhero. You know, he basically defined an aspect of of medical advancement, and he was he was it. It wasn't he wasn't the black person, the black version of. Of, you know, of a of a medical genius. He he was it. And then to have him come out as a Republican and be such a bobblehead the last few years um with uh the Trump media campaign, it, it's just been a huge disappointment. And what I wanted to show is that his accomplishments are still his accomplishments. And it's complicated. It's not black and white. And the attempt to kind of cancel people is a really great I, I think I think of it more as accountability than canceling. The the language of so many of these phrases really doesn't actually convey what it actually is. It's it's about accountability. But then it's it's also it's not black and white. And so what I wanted to represent was that this is someone who is still part of our culture, still part of our community. And his accomplishments are are still you can't argue with with what he has accomplished. Yeah. But his his legacy has been diminished. Even by in his the medical profession. In the medical profession, absolutely. Even doctors don't want to be associated with them.
3: <laughs> well, because he was saying that herbal supplements cause yeah. autism. No, and he's things just that
1: become a nincompoop.
3: Ninkum poop. <laughs> We're talking with George McCallum about Ninkum poops and also a lot of really incredible people <laughs> who he features in his book, Illustrated Black History. And you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts and reflections as you hear George McCallum describing both the people that he profiled and the process that he went through to create this book. This listener writes, I often think about how many unsung heroes, not to mention brilliant minds, never had a chance to shine because of racism and all the barriers it created. Mm-hmm. Advances in medicine, technology, and so many other things that might have happened sooner if racism didn't exist. A project like this reminds people of the cost of racism.
1: Yes. Yes. And, that, and that's, that's what it is. It is, a, it is a cost. And people often talk about racism only affecting the communities that are on the receiving end of it but i've always posited that racism haunts white people too you know it's like this this is a it's a i call it a human cancer it it is its own sickness and it it diminishes everyone involved it it is not only targeting the people that it absolutely affects and and yes the people on the receiving end of racism have it worse than the people who are inflicting it. But it really is, it's just, it's a cyclical sadness.
3: Mm, A cyclical sadness. I should mention that there is a new documentary short about George McCallman, How McCallman Created the Book. It premieres this Saturday, February 18th at the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco. We'll have more with George McCallman after the break and with you, our listeners. Stay with us, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with George McCalman about his new book, Illustrated Black History. The book is the culmination of years-long project gathering painting and writing about Black pioneers across disciplines, both famous and unsung. And you, our listeners, are sharing your unsung Black heroes at 866-733-6786 on email, forum at kqed.org. You can post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum as well. And let me go to Barry next in San Francisco. Hi, Barry, you're on.
0: Hi, Nina. Thanks for taking my call. And uh, George, your work is wonderful, and I very much appreciate it. I Thanks wanted you, to call in and say that Oh, you're welcome. Um, You're very inspiring to me. But I wanted to say that a person that was always inspiring to me and whom I always thought of as inspirational to many people around him was a man dead now whose name was Arthur Coleman. And he was a physician in Bayview Hunters Point. And he came to Bayview Hunters Point in 1948 and practiced medicine there his whole life until he died in 2022. But he bought a piece of property right on 3rd Street a block down from St. Paul the, Sh- or Paul the Shifworth Church and built the Arthur Coleman Medical Center and in its heyday it was a place that had OBGYN, dentists other specialties caring for everyone in the community but focused on the care and the well-being of African American men and women and children and uh, the building still exists and the clinic still exists although he's long dead. But I just wanted to give a shout out to him because he dedicated his whole life to caring for people in the Baby Hunters Point community. And I wanted to just call out Arca Coleman's name so that he was not forgotten about. Mm. And I had the pleasure of working with him when I was director of a set of clinics at St. Mary's, where we'd bring our mobile clinic out to the Coleman Clinic and do health screenings and try and address health disparities that to this day exist in that community. So thank you for the opportunity to talk about them.
3: Uh, Thank you for telling us about Arthur Coleman-Berry. Not everyone in this book is an individual. There are moments when you basically choose a collective. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of Black Lives Matter co-founders, Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Ayot Mm Mehdi. Why did you choose to do it that way?
1: Um, Because... You know, this is a longer conversation about the symmetry and polarity of the Black community being a diaspora, uh, that we self-identify as a diaspora, as well as a collection of individual people. Um, And it is, it's a very, it's it's an African philosophy, but it is also how we live. And we are very similar in that philosophy all over the world. And, and what that means is that we see that we have a res- responsibility to each other and that that is what that is. We are each other's keepers. But we also know that we're also really different people. And what I wanted to do was bring some of that uh, visually and philosophically into this book also, that there are several collectives in here, in this book. And, you know, you know I... I I couldn't do a book like this without having the Black Lives Matter's founders, yeah. um, that it's not just a, a symptom of Bay Area culture and philosophy. It's So many of the cultural trends that we take for granted start in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was represent that. And I also wanted to represent that these were the black women, that black women are still at the foundation of our evolution as a society, as an American society. And that what these three women have done is really unprecedented. You know, it it is a singular movement and it is built on the foundation of all of the other movements that have come before. We as a community, we pay really close attention to the lessons. Of the civil rights movement, of the Black Panther, of the Harlem Renaissance, we we know that we are we are um, we are in service to yeah. the sacrifices that our forebears have made, and so this is just another example—a
3: singular a movement that couldn't have been done by a single person. Yes, there's another collective that you profile. These are the Black athletes who competed in the 1936 Olympics. In Germany, most mm-hmm. famous among them, mm-hmm. Jesse Owens. It's almost like what they accomplished is almost now more powerful, had greater impact than anything that any one individual right. could have could have seen.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Because oftentimes, you know, with the history, the context of the historical narrative, these are people who have their backs against the wall, who are against the world, and are basically representing um, American culture when they are hated as individuals. Talk about a balancing act. And so many of the pioneers in this book are caught in that paradigm of we're representing proudly a country that hates us. And, and how do you reconcile being a proud American with knowing how much this country has systematically tried to dismantle our advancements? Um, that's, a, that's something I thought about the entire time of making this book and, and really kind of tried to get into the psychology. And it's really, it's heavy and it's really intense.
3: Well, this listener writes deep respect and gratitude to you for your tenacity in exposing our true history and lifting these souls. The hypocrisy of what is happening in Florida against the reality of the legacy museum is stark. It should be mandatory for our government officials to take a tour through that museum.
1: Yes. And I, I said Rick DeSantis earlier. I meant Ron. Yes. DeSantis. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
3: this Florida governor. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, the... You wanted to have total control over how the book physically looked.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Why was that so important to you?
1: Oh, this is really important to state. (laughs) Um, Because I knew if I didn't design it, someone white was going to design it. Very, very simply. (laughs) That publishing and book publishing in particular is still, still, Behind the Times uh, in terms of the gatekeepers are still mostly white and still mostly making decisions from their cultural perspective, from their vantage point. And I knew I had to retain control of the design of the book to make sure that it had the, the cultural DNA of everything else in the book.
3: Do you want to say a little bit about the publishing world? <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's, that's a, how much time? I, do I have, you, you do, time you do offer have. just
3: some real nuggets of reflection on what it's like. <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm laughing both <laughs> inside in and outside. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a villain laugh right now. Yeah. Um, it was a really complicated process. Like yeah. the first three years of making this book were really terrible. Mm. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible experience. And, you know, constantly fighting for maintaining the thing that I had made clear what I was actually attempting to do. Um, and, and the mistake I made, frankly, was in trying to be collaborative the first couple of years. And then finally I was like, no, no, no you guys are actually helping me. This is my book. And what I need from everyone involved is a sense that basically, I'm the person making these decisions. And we can talk through all of them. But I'm the person who knows how to do this. And I would like you guys to know that too. Um, and, and in their defense, I mean, HarperCollins has been amazing, uh, since then, <laughs> it's been, they've been amazing. Um, but it took, it took, it was an arduous climb up a very steep hill to mm. get to that peak where I could look around and say, okay, I'm actually not bitter anymore.
3: Let me go to caller Willie in Chino next. Willie, you're on. Hi. Hi.
6: I'm calling about William Monroe Trotter. They said he had his own organization, newspaper. And that his men were in the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, fighting back also. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was wondering if I could find out more about him.
3: Speaking of publishing, had his own newspaper.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and so many of us have have been forced to do that because there's no internal. Um, you know, the, the origin point of this book is that I actually went to several publishers the first year, af- right after I'd finished the project, and, and just emailed several editors at various uh, publishers. And what I got was what I expected to get in response, which is that, oh, we, we're, not, we're not sure about this, and, and we're not sure there's a market for it, we're not sure it's going to sell. And I was like, well, I knew that would be the response, initial response, but it's it was um it was really sad to hear that again to know basically that i knew i was not the first person to have this idea but that it would take a little more fortitude to kind of navigate through the the general cultural apathy around it that i had to kind of find my fortitude i had to find my my steel in my spine that I was going to be dealing with this sort of response the entire time.
3: Yeah. And how little has changed that this is still so persistent. Yes. Well, the listener writes, good show, thoughtful artist, honoring the unseen especially. Hope the book becomes well-known everywhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank We're you. We're talking
3: with George McCallman, Of course, the book is illustrated Black history honoring the iconic and the unseen this is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. All right, let me go next to Jennifer in San Francisco. Hi, Jennifer. You are on. Hi.
7: Um, I was calling to nominate a hero that helped me during the pandemic, um, He's an amazing artist. Um, his name is George McCallman, and um, he. he um, Who is this? Him. Who is this? Hi, <laughs> this is Jen. I bought your um, "Don't Make It a Thing" painting during the uh, "Tell Me Three Things" show. Amazing. Um, yeah, back you know in 2020 yes. um, during some really challenging social and personal times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were all, as as you know, we were all scared with the pandemic. We didn't have vaccines yet. And mm-hmm. the, the show that um, I saw George at was um, his response to things, stupid things that people were telling him in response to George Floyd. And, um, and I walked in there and I was just looking around and... Um, and, and mostly eavesdropping on the conversations you were having with people in the studio. And you just seems to be like such a Buddha presence, just like this very calm, cool uh, teacher who was just, you know, sharing his art. And I walked out of there, you know, maybe saying hi or like, this is wonderful, and, mm-hmm. and walked away. And a couple blocks down the road, I was like, I think I need a piece of this light and in my house mm-hmm. and we were dealing with a recent diagnosis um my child was very sick and we had recently found out that they had type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. so we were dealing with a so sorry. a major medical issue in our house and and so seeing you uh, you know I've been following you on Instagram ever since since I bought that painting and and seeing you thrive and struggle and 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 then oh my gosh now you're on the scene, um, through all of these really hard times, like yeah. you're like, you, you are so inspirational. And I just want to thank you for seeing me through, I don't know if you knew, this, like a really hard time. And, mm, thank um, you,
1: Jennifer. so that's why you're my
7: hero. Aww. Thank
1: you. That's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs>
3: Jennifer. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Let me go that's next to, in- well, yeah, incredible. go ahead. If you would wanted to comment.
1: No, that's, that's incredible. I, I, um, yeah, that that show in particular uh, was a really important turning point for me. Mm-hmm. Was in knowing that I part of my art was to respond to culture. It, it's not just to to make it that I I had I was receiving these really terrible messages in my personal life. And I started realizing that I wasn't the only person, that every Black person I, I knew was receiving these kinds of messages, um, and that I wanted to do something about it. And basically, the book came about the same way. I, I had a quandary that I decided to act on, and I, I wanted to do something. I didn't just want to complain that I wasn't finding a book that I, as a Black person, deserved to have, and that other Black people and my community deserved to have I decided to actually do something about it
3: you actually describe this book to publishers and agents as a cultural offering yes. not a book
1: I, I had to remind the my collaborators of that many times and it's a it's a phrase that I use uh, cultural offering cultural artifact that these are not just books uh, no book is just a book um, but because I'm a black person designing and making books for myself and others that I recognize the impact that these offerings will have when they're out in the world, that a book like this with sub subject matter like this means the world to a lot of people. And so the regular metrics of making a book should fly out the window (laughs) and that it should be considered with a contextual, philosophical, emotional lens that all of those things are active, and should be active in the marketing, distribution, and selling of the book, too.
3: We talked a lot about how you drew people, but there is a way that you described Sarah Vaughn that mm. I just want to also showcase how you wrote about mm-hmm. people. Sarah Vaughn was one of the rare singers whose voice soundtracks the first kiss, the third Valentine's Day dinner. Mm-hmm. You want it playing in the background when, you're, when you not only say you're sorry, but you mean it. Mm-hmm. You say when I listen to Sarah Vaughan's rendition, I feel courageous. Rendition of "Summertime."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the this is the emotion of our culture. That you know, a lot of the book is written from my first person perspective. It's my response to not just their accomplishments, but what their accomplishments made me feel, and and that is actual history. That is what history actually is. It's not just a series of, of notes and points and locations. It is about, there is a feedback loop to history where we get to learn and we get to respond to it. The idea is to not make the same mistakes. And when you don't know your history, of course, you're just going to keep making the same mistakes. And so this is a way for us to reclaim that and to apply it to our everyday lives.
3: You you've shared a lot, and so don't feel like you have to say more. But just to immerse yourself with these pioneers in this way, to write about them, to draw them, is there anything you haven't yet said about how it changed you?
1: Uh, it changed me pretty. This project has just re, reshaped my creative and professional life moving forward. Wow. Um, you know, the thing about graphic designers is we we inhabit other people's lives. And so doing this book meant that I was in front. I am the ambassador of this book. And so it's changed me in that I am just a more public person because of that. And it's weird. It's weird. It's a weird thing for me uh because I like I have liked being the mac in the back and now I'm not. <laughs>
3: yeah. George McClellan, artist, graphic designer, creative director. His new book, Illustrated Black History, Honoring the Iconic and the Unseen. Thank you so much for thank talking you. with Mina, us. Thank you. Mina,
1: I can talk to you for hours. Oh, thank too. you so much. You
3: Susie Britton produced today's segment. So grateful to Susie for all the segments. Oh, thank you, Susie. She produces and to our production team at Forum. And always so thankful to your listeners for being part of the conversation on Forum. I'm Mina Kim
1: your mom is
0: good-looking
4: So hi, little baby, don't you cry
7: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation,